afternoon, everyone. This is Zach Lucas from McCarthy Denning. Obviously, today is uh, India Pakistan virtual round uh, table uh, discussion. Happy to be joined by Shira Rao, uh, partner ACB partners. Uh, for some of you, if you used to tuning into these things, you would have seen Shira in the Governance and Succession series, where she teamed up with uh, the Indonesian counterpart. So Shira is back to uh, to help us through with the, on the India aspects, and we've also been joined by. Uh, John Shoemaker and his colleague Ivan Lung, uh, both from Butler Snow, and they'll be covering uh, the US angle on this, um, the, the fact patterns that we run through on these virtual tables. We're also very happy to introduce uh, Diana Hamid, managing partner of uh, Diana Hamid Attorneys, and Diana's in uh, Dubai, and she'll be helping us with the UAE aspects of the uh, virtual round table. For today, uh, India Private Client Virtual Round Table. Now, the agenda for today is, as with all of these virtual round tables, um, we, we go through a domestic case uh, study where we look primarily at a domestic Indian uh, resident domiciliary and look at the fact pattern where that individual has assets abroad. And then we have a few life cycle events occur, divorce, passing uh, away, et cetera. So we'll look at the compliance matrimonial divorce and succession aspect, and then we'll pivot and do the reverse, uh, which is the foreign case version of this, where we have a non-resident Indian outside, obviously, of India, but with assets in India and around the world. Uh, and here we'll look at the compliance matrimonial property and divorce succession again, but in reverse, so that we can see how it would work, where we're dealing with an NRI instead. So, uh, commencing with case study one. So here are the fact patterns. As usual, we always start out with a, um, a, a hypothetical fact pattern for these particular um, case studies. So in this case, we have Akash, who's married to Sapna, and they have one child, Indica. Uh, Akash has a trading company in India, uh, a depository account or an account, and is also a domicile, a resident uh, citizen domiciled in India. Akash also has a UAE trust, and for today's purposes, um, we obviously have different financial um, uh, free zones in, in uh, the UAE, but we'll concentrate for today's purposes just on the DIFC. So we'll assume that we have a DIFC uh, trust, which holds an account, and we have a, a company in the UAE. We also have an account in the US, as well as land in the US. And then lastly, from the UK perspective, we have an account and UK land. So these are fairly standard fact patterns. But the key, key aspect here is Akash is Indian citizen, resident and domiciliary. Okay, so totally domestic individual with a domestic family. So that the family are not internationally spread. So unusually on these um, virtual round tables, we don't generally go into tax. So in this case, we're going to look at the tax compliance aspects as an additional um, feature. So from a tax compliance perspective, looking at it from an Indian standpoint, I think what we'll discuss is the following, the scope of domestic taxation, income gains, and particularly if there's any inheritance taxes. The basis of taxation in India is a global territorial remittance, what, what, how does it work? And the attribution of taxation, and here we're really looking at um, things like a CFC-like rule for the UAE trust income and gains, can that be attributed? Likewise, the attribution back to India for uh, uh, taxation on UK and US investment income. And then finally, and I think this is gonna be a theme of this particular uh, PRT is, what can we expect from an Indian uh, tax administration perspective 
in respect of the recovery from COVID-19 uh, and how it may affect high net worth families. So I've invited Trina to just take us through from, from the top, uh, the scope of domestic taxation right through to basis and then the attribution and the, the COVID recovery. Sure. Thanks, Zach. Um, so on the first question regarding the scope of domestic taxation, um, India, like several other countries, taxes its residents on a worldwide basis and it taxes its non-residents in relation to their Indian source income. We don't have worldwide taxation based on citizenship or domicile or any other factor. So it's primarily based on the physical stay and the number of days that a person would have spent in India on the basis of which they're determined to be resident and then taxed on a worldwide basis. Uh, a similar rule applies for capital gains as well. We don't have an inheritance tax in place at this point in time, but it is likely that if and when it is introduced that we would follow a similar scheme to what we do in our income tax laws as well. Uh, although that's of course hypothesizing at some level. Um, the basis of taxation for Indian source income can be, uh, it can trigger on a number of situations. So remittance could be one of the situations in which it triggers, but it could also be if the income accrues or arises in India or is deemed to accrue or arise in India based on certain factors. So for example, for capital gains, if an asset is situated in India, then it would typically be considered to be sourced in India, irrespective of the location of the asset holder. Uh, and so you would need to look at the source rules as are applicable for individual assets or individual sources of income. Um, the next two questions are actually a similar question. So on the attributed tax of UAE trust income or attributed tax of UK US investments, uh, what, what we need to keep in mind is that India does not have CFC rules in place as of this point in time. So what you would be looking at is whether this offshore company, if it's a company, can be considered to have its place of effective management in India. Uh, and the way in which India determines this is similar to how it would be determined under the OECD treaties, although there are a couple of points of departure. Uh, and for trust income, we don't have a specific residency rule that tells us how offshore trusts would be considered resident in India or how their income would be attributed to India. So there are a couple of possibilities that could apply. One is if an offshore trust has even a single trustee in India. So say there's a board of trustees with a majority of them being non-Indian resident, but with one Indian trustee then one of the provisions in our residency rule says that if even a fraction of the control and management of this offshore entity is in India, then it could be considered to be resident in India and therefore taxable in India on a worldwide basis. Uh, now, this provision isn't applied specifically to trusts, but it does apply to non-corporate, non-company entities. So this is the rule that applies to partnerships, for instance, uh, and therefore there is a possibility that it could be extended to trusts as well, since trusts are not considered to have legal personality in India. So short point being trustee in India could be a potential uh, situation where an offshore trust is taxable here. Another possibility is um, if all of the beneficiaries of an offshore trust are resident in India, and this is if it's a discretionary trust, or if it's a specific trust with some beneficiaries resident in India, 
then what would effectively happen is that uh, the trustee who is considered a representative assessee of these beneficiaries could be considered taxable in India because of the residency of the beneficiaries in India. And that's something that would need to be examined depending on the details of the trust structure, uh, whether the beneficiaries can be considered to have fructified claims in the underlying distributions and so on. Um, other than these two broad rules, uh, we don't really have too many rules for notional attribution of income. Uh, although you would need to uh, keep an eye out for it because CFC rules were in contemplation a few years back and I wouldn't be too surprised if they're introduced at some point in the future. Um, on the last question, Zach, post-COVID-19 tax, administ tax administration responses, we have had some relief introduced for um, in relation to individual residency. So we had some communications put out last year that if individuals were stuck in India due to travel restrictions, and we had uh, pretty prolonged quarantine periods after COVID started. So what this communication says is that if they were unable to leave India during those specific periods, then those periods would not be counted in relation to the determination of their individual residency. Um, what the communication does not do is provide a similar relief in relation to permanent establishment exposure. So in a lot of our treaties with other countries, for instance, you would have a number of day requirements in relation to when a PE comes into existence. So for example, it could be a 90 day requirement if it's a service PE, for instance. Uh, and there's been no relief that's been provided on that front, which could potentially create permanent est establishment exposure for some kinds of offshore entities. Right. In terms of the, the, the post-COVID response, um, do you anticipate or have there been any uh, sort of soundings that the, the, the Indian Revenue Authority will become a little bit more aggressive on avoidance behavior and uh, the sort of tax planning that they feel is aggressive? Or have they, you know, have we got a, a, any indication of a timeline for inheritance taxes or potentially a CFC introduction. How, how are you seeing that shaping up? So CFC is an issue on which there's not a lot of conversation today, to be honest, although we did have draft regulations put out a few years back. Inheritance tax, on the other hand, is discussed every year, every time the budget comes out. Uh, although the word on the street is that with the economy as it is right now um, and, you know, the period of slowdown as it is, it's unlikely that the government will introduce an inheritance tax at this point in time. Um, although the financial incentive for it exists, because it would obviously contribute to revenue at some level during the period of slowdown, I think they're also uh, conscious of the fact that it would have an impact on sentiment, which they don't want at this point in time. Right. So uh, I would be surprised if they introduce it this year, uh, although it's definitely something that's been on their mind. Right. Um, on the issue of avoidance, I would not think so. I mean, although it's this is not the kind of thing that they tend to put out in public domain. Uh, like I said, there is a general sort of uh, concern around the sentiment and the economic slowdown. So I think that would reflect in terms of uh, the attitude of the tax authorities as well, right. hopefully. Okay, okay. All right, thanks very much. So what we'll move on to is we'll look at the tax compliance aspects um, in the UAE. And there's a couple of questions that I'll ask here. Um, the scope of taxation for foreign ownership. And in the UAE, in this case, we've got um, Akash owns a company and he's also settled a trust in the DIFC and the trust holds an account. Um, so 
we're looking at the basis of taxation for those, those entities where there's a foreign element, and then the exchange of information under the CRS, and that's looking at the, uh, whether or not there's a live uh, bilateral agreement under the CRS between the UAE and India, where information can flow. And in this case, probably the, the candidate is going to be the underlying account of the trust or the trust itself. And then I uh, sort of invite Diana to, to mention what we can expect from the UAE in terms of its post-COVID response, particularly when it comes to foreign investment into the UAE. So I think we'll just kick off with the, the scope of taxation where we have a foreign element, uh, foreign ownership of a company, and then obviously a foreign settlement of a trust and potential beneficiaries of a trust, and, and then the exchange of information on the CRS. So Diana, if I can invite you to, to help us through this. Thank you, Zach. Hello, everyone. So the UAE has always been known for um, a tax-free country. Uh, we've never really had tax um, in our lives, except for now for the last two years, since the GCC has come up with its own VAT tax. The VAT is mainly not the kind of tax that would be on income or of, of that sort. It is just a VAT and in the UAE is still at 5%. So when I look at the assets that um, uh, Akash has in the UAE, he has uh, a DIFC trust, but he has a property or a, or a company. They may be onshore. So it's not really clear here for us, but the, the most important thing in the UAE is to look at the onshore and offshore in order to decide how does the tax work. Um, the VAT is onshore, uh, mandated, obligatory, the 5%, um, but on the trust, there is no tax. So it's the, the, tr the trust is, is VAT free. Right. Now, yes, so, so far, this is what we can see here from the, the assets that um, Akash owns. Now the C CSR, um, we know, as far as the trust is concerned, there are strict rules uh, in the DIFC on CSR and uh, failure to comply would um, lead to um, some penal consequences. Um, now, does the UAE and, the, uh, and India uh, have a treaty of that sort? I don't believe that the treaty is required here because the CSR rules are applied in DIFC regardless. Uh, as long as there is an account owned by a trust in the DIFC, the CSR rules would apply. And in the post-COVID, do we, do we think that the UAE is likely to in any way uh, change some of these tax-free uh, basises going forward? Or do you think that it's going to be more encouraging to, um, to foreign investment into the UAE? Well, uh, individuals? I'm glad to say that so far we did not have any initiatives or any measures as far as um, tax is concerned. Um, in our neighboring state, like like the Saudi, they've put the, their VAT immediately at 15%, but the UAE is still keeping the 5%. And luckily, just to attract foreign investment, I think that is a very wise step. Right, right. Okay, okay. Thanks very much, Dan. Now, the US side. So here's a question from the US, because obviously Akash holds an account, and he also has um, property, land in the US. So scope of taxation of foreign ownership uh, exchange of financial account information, FATCA, so looking at the, the Indian-US FATCA arrangements. And the, the, the recent US foreign landlord enforcement action, what that looks like 
particularly if the U.S. land is, um, is, is, is let out commercially. And then the U.S. tax implications from the recent election for a, uh, an Indian uh, individual that holds assets in this way in the U.S., what can they expect to see, if anything, in terms of the treatment being changed? So um, I'd invite the Ivan and, and, and John to just make some comments. Please. Sure. Th thanks, Zach. Um, you know, from a U.S. perspective, uh, uh, have to start off always with the idea that U.S. is a bit unique worldwide taxation on U.S. persons. But in this instance, we don't have, we have a non-U.S. person that's owning these assets um, in the U.S. So non-U.S. persons still are liable uh, for U.S. tax. Um, the U.S. system will break down into three tiers. So federal level, which is most of what we'll be talking about today, but there's also state level. And then in some instances, local or city level um, uh, taxes that could be at play. We'll touch briefly on those and, and more substantively on the California side later in the presentation. But just keep in mind when we talk about the tax effects here, we're talking about three tiers and then we'll divide it into income taxes and then transfer taxes, estate and gift taxes. So in this particular in instance, you've got the account in the US, the non-US person could be liable to US tax to the extent that that account is holding US securities. Um, what the liability is could be just a straight withholding if we're talking about simple ordinary dividends and interest paid off of holding those securities. It could, however, be exempt if we're talking about capital gains, because the U.S. takes the opposite position, if I understood correctly, that India takes when it comes to sourcing. It's not about where the asset is located. It's about the residence of the individual who sells the asset and realizes the gain. And so the U.S. wants to incent investment into the U.S., so they relieve a capital gain uh, liability from non-US persons. That's the general rule. When we look at the other asset in question here, the real estate, we're now dealing with the exception to that rule though. The US has reinstituted a capital gain equivalent called FERPTA, Foreign Investment in Real Property Tax Act. It's basically just a capital gain on US real estate that's uh, bought and sold by non-US persons. So in this instance here, we'd have withholding tax on dividends and, and interest that's paid off of the account. The exception there also, portfolio interest. So bonds, most bonds, when they pay out, wouldn't have that withholding obligation. Again, another incentive to get non-US investment into the US debt, into US debt instruments. Uh, and then on the real estate, any type of rent that's charged is going to be ordinary income, US sourced. You'll have a liability. That regularly wouldn't be handled by withholding. Most US persons that are renting a home from someone don't realize that they would have a withholding obligation. They'll just pay the rent. So the recipient's going to file what's called a 1040 NR or a 1040 non-resident return and pay US income tax on the rent that they received on the property. Then if they sell the property, they'll owe on the capital gain. So the spread between the purchase acquisition cost of the property and then the realized sale price when they do sell it. And then overarching over all of this is a transfer tax liability. So U.S. persons ha uh, have a worldwide transfer tax liability, estate and gift tax, any asset they hold. I, as an example, if I hold an asset while I'm living in Singapore, uh, 
and I gift it to someone, or if I die holding it, I have U.S. estate tax exposure. However, I have a, a very large 11.58 million lifetime exemption. So most U.S. persons are subject to uh, estate tax on their worldwide holdings, but will never actually pay it because they won't accumulate over 11 million in assets in their lifetime. But a non-U.S. person like we have in the situation here has still a U.S. estate tax liability only to the extent that they're holding U.S. CITUS assets, um, but a very small exemption, only 60,000 U.S. dollars. So anything above that, they would be subject to U.S. estate tax. Here, the land is most likely and the building most likely worth more than $60,000. So you would have a U.S. estate tax exposure uh, to the extent that it's held directly. If it's not, there's a, a fairly straightforward and simple workaround here is to hold that land on the other U.S. CITUS assets like the U.S. stocks and securities. Hold that in a uh, minimally in a pick an offshore company or maybe combine that underlying company with a trust of some sort like we have in the, the example above. That's a shielding technique for that exposure. Yeah. When it comes to exchange of information, the US is not participating uh, in CRS. So they have FATCA, they're getting data about US persons around the world that have uh, financial accounts um, or are controlling persons of financial accounts. However, don't get lulled into a simple yes, no answer on that, because while they're not participating in CRS, there are reciprocal arrangements available to any country that wishes to enter into it with the U.S. And a, a, an example here in the, the country that I'm in right now, Singapore, recently switched from a non-reciprocal intergovernmental agreement to a reciprocal. So when that goes into effect, Singapore will now start to get data from the U.S. as to Singaporeans who hold accounts in the U.S. Now, it's not one-for-one one data. So the type of very onerous and rigid rules that FATCA and CRS put in offshore, those have not been implemented internally in the U.S. For example, trustees of U.S. trusts do not have uh, most of the onerous reporting obligations that fall on offshore trustees. However, as Zach highlights on the slide here, the U.S. has started to become more aggressive in their enforcement of FERPTA, so identifying non-U.S. persons who own real estate and might collect revenue because of it. So we're hearing rumblings that this could have a connection effect with FATCA reciprocal agreements. The U.S. could become the first country to start to lead the way in exchanging data around values of real estate holdings, which are currently not used in the calculation of the CRS data that is set, either from an FI perspective or uh, um, a controlling person of an NFFE perspective. So just something to be careful and watch out. If, if somebody talks to you about the US doesn't participate in CRS, it's the last great jurisdiction for you to um, legitimately and correctly hide wealth. That may be true in the short term and in a very technical reading, but the devil's always in the details and you don't want to spend a lot of time and money to structure yourself into something if the primary intention is preserving privacy, if you know that a reciprocal agreement could be signed at any moment uh, or there's a heightened attention being paid by the U.S. to foreign ownership of real estate, which could result in a reporting of that value that would not otherwise be reportable under CRS in a different uh, jurisdiction. Yeah. Uh, and then la go ahead. Yeah. My understanding, isn't it? Is it right? And also, Tria, for you, 
the, the FATCA arrangement between the US and India is it's on a reciprocal basis. Is that correct? That's right. Right. Yes. So, so in this instance, we would have the US financial institutions would be exchanging information with uh, the Indian tax authority on what uh, Akash is effectively um, getting in the US, whether it's interest or dividend. Is that is that right? That's correct. And in fact, the Indian tax authorities have also put out communication uh, to this effect, uh, where they are coordinating with the regulators on the kind of information disclosure that we would be making and uh, collecting information in relation. Right, right. So John, on to the, the election implications for Akash holding land and investments in the US, what, what sort of, uh, in brief, what, what do we expect? Is it going to get bad for him? Yeah, it, it could. Um, so I'll give you I'll give you the downside and then I'll kind of maybe make people feel a little bit better with a, a brief discussion, as I mentioned at the start with the political um, practicalities. So from uh, the, the worst case scenario or the downside here, um, the ordinary income tax rates that will be in effect on um, rental income that's being charged on the property, those could very well rise under the new um, the new presidency. Um, we could also look at loss of basis step up. So when we talk about normal foreign grantor trust planning, holding property for next generations and them taking it at a stepped up basis, that could be eliminated. And so you wouldn't have the next generation. You would have a, an estate tax exposure of some sort, a wealth tax equivalent, but no step up in basis. So then the next generation would also face that capital gains tax, um, not if they're exempt, Okay, but again, we've got the FERPTA that would, would put it back in with real estate. Uh, and then it, with a lot of this planning, sometimes the, the, the people will send the second or third generation family members to the US and they become US persons, which expands um, the, their, uh, the liability. Now, having spoken about you know, that increase in the potential um, exposure on both an income and a transfer or estate tax side, the practicality right now, as the lay of the land sits, is that the Republicans will maintain control of the Senate. It appears that it's 50 to 48 at this point with two special elections that will come at the beginning of January in the state of Georgia. Um, if the Democrats were to win both of those seats, that would be a 50-50 tie in the Senate and a tie in the Senate is broken by the vice president. In this case, that is vice president-elect Kamala Harris. So the Democrats would have control under that scenario. However, the state of Georgia is a rather conservative state and both of the individuals who were in the runoffs from the Republican side, the Republicans garnered uh, a much larger amount of the vote than the Democrats. The reason it went to a runoff is neither candidate got the required 50% plus one uh, to not have a runoff. So they were below 50, but they were the overwhelming leader in the race. So it's not likely that Senate control will flip, meaning it will be tougher for any of these changes to actually go into effect. So we would expect that the status quo would maintain for at least two years uh, but if the last year or two years has taught us anything, um, making predictions can be utterly folly. So we just have to wait and see how those uh, runoff elections uh, occur. Okay, thanks very much, John. So let's go into the UK side. And I'll, I'll go through this quickly so we can get on to the, the sort of meat of the, the cross-jurisdictional aspects. 
from the, the foreign sort of scope of taxation in the UK, the CRS, as well as post-COVID. I think from the, it's pretty much like the US and the UK, you'll have source-related uh, income. Obviously, the uh, India and the UK have a double tax treaty in effect. Um, so, uh, for instance, Akash here would be entitled to his personal allowance in, in the UK. Um, any source income, so if it's dividends, there'd be no tax uh, deducted at source, but if it's interest income, there'd be some deduction although the, the treaty will have an effect on how much can be deducted. And on the, the UK land, if it's, uh, it's not being held through a company, and of course, Akash is a citizen resident and domiciliary of India, so we have no UK complications in that regard. If it is being let out, it will be subject to the non-resident landlord scheme. Uh, and in that instance, uh, Akash can try and opt to have uh, rental payments uh, paid gross so that he can actually pay the tax later on. Otherwise, the uh, letting agent will be the person that will likely do it all default of which any tenants. But in this case, um, the scope of taxation is very much on a source basis. There's no other connectivity other than the assets in the UK. From a CRS perspective, uh, UK and India are fully live on CRS, and there is an exchange um, each year. Uh, that's been by virtue of the multilateral competent authority agreement agreed between the two jurisdictions. And uh, they were both uh, effectively quite early on in terms of the adoption of the CRS. So this has been going on for a number of years now. Post-COVID tax administration response, um, nothing really to report yet on this. There's obviously been some tweaking on, um, you know, sort of non-residents owning properties in the UK and some SDLT or stamp duty hikes for that, but nothing targeted at the moment. Um, uh, perhaps we might have uh, some of this um, discussion that's happening at the moment with wealth taxes and that may affect the UK property land but um, we're too early on to see if the high net worth segment are going to be specifically targeted as part of a COVID recovery plan for the UK. So fairly similar to the US although not, not necessarily as, as aggressive. Okay now moving to more the private client aspect rather than the taxation, domestic community property and looking at it from an Indian perspective. So this is looking at the marriage between Sapna and Akash. And the simple question is this, does India actually have community property as part of its family law, uh, Shriya? Uh, we don't generally have a concept of community property, although I should caveat that our personal laws are uh, religion specific and sometimes geography specific. So for example, in the state of Goa, which was uh, under the Portuguese rule, uh, uh, even after independence for a while, there are provisions that say that if your parents are Portuguese parents, uh, or if you're an individual who resides in Goa and uh, who is domiciled in Goa, then community property could potentially apply. And in that situation, what the couple needs to do is before they get married, they would go to the registrar of special notaries and uh, register their individually held property as their separate property. Uh, and they would probably enter into a prenuptial agreement as well. But for all other individuals, uh, generally there, there shouldn't be a concept of community under Indian succession law. Right. So each each party to the marriage separately owns their property and there's no automatic That's correct. Ruling. Right. Okay. From a domestic divorce perspective, again, staying with, with India. And, and here's the questions on the basis on which the Indian court will actually exercise jurisdiction. To, to grant a divorce? Is it the, on the basis that the couple were resident in India, domiciled, citizens of India? What, what's the basis? Uh, whether uh, the court may exercise discretion to divide matrimonial property, is there a concept of that? Whether prenuptial and postnuptial arrangements are enforceable in India? 
And then finally, uh, whether an Indian court would seek to make orders that have extraterritorial effect, because obviously Akash holds assets around the world. So they, that would be within the mix of potential um, matrimonial property. So the basis on which an Indian court would exercise jurisdiction, you know. Sure. Thanks, Zach. So uh, before I start, Zach, I should caveat again that Indian personal laws are religion specific. So just to give you an idea, there are several legislations under which couples could get married in India. If both the individuals who are getting married are Hindus, then uh, they could potentially register under the Hindu Marriage Act. If it is a couple from different religions, then we have something called the Special Marriage Act. Uh, and if it is, for instance, Indian origin individuals who live outside India, then we have a foreign marriage act that could potentially apply. So you need to look at what is the relevant legislation under which the individuals are married to figure out uh, how, how the divorce procedure would work. Uh, just to give you a sense, under the Hindu Marriage Act and the Special Marriage Act, some of the situations where uh, an Indian court could exercise jurisdiction uh, are if the marriage was solemnized in India or if the respondent um, is resident in India at the time that the petition is presented or if the parties to the marriage last resided together in India. Right. Uh, so these are some situations where an Indian court would exercise jurisdiction uh, under the Hindu marriage or special marriage legislations. And similarly, under the Foreign Marriage Act, an Indian court may grant a divorce if the parties to the marriage are domiciled in India at the time that the petition is presented, or if the petitioner being the wife was domiciled in India just before marriage right. and resided in India for a period of at least three years just before the petition is presented. So this is primarily to, to deal with a situation where an Indian resident woman gets married and then moves abroad. Uh, and then registered under the Foreign Marriage Act, but then the marriage breaks down and she comes back to India. Right, right. Uh, so it would it would depend, but broadly speaking, if there's residency in India or domicile in India, there's a fairly good possibility that an Indian course would exercise, uh, court would exercise jurisdiction. Um, and this would apply to division of matrimonial property as well. Uh, although since, uh, you know, we discussed that there isn't a concept of community, it would basically be the individually held property that they would look to divide. Right. Um, on prenuptial and postnuptial agreements, again, it would depend on the personal law that is applicable. So for example, Hindu marriages are considered sacraments, they're not considered contractual. Uh, so you don't consent to a Hindu marriage in the way in which you would consent to a Muslim marriage, for instance. Uh, so Muslim marriage under Sharia law is not valid unless both parties say that they accept the marriage. Uh, and so the nature of these two under the respective personal laws is, is, is essentially very different. And that, uh, that sort of motivates how a prenuptial or a postnuptial agreement would be treated as well. So although we don't have specific laws dealing with this, uh, we do have a general provision in our contract act that says that agreements and restraint of marriage are not valid. Right. And courts have relied on this provision to interpret how a prenuptial or a postnuptial agreement uh, should, be, should be considered. Right. And in some situations, they have been held to be valid so long as they don't, uh, they're not against public policy. So, so long as the court doesn't assume that they're motivating the couple to break up the marriage, they can be considered to be held valid. But it would be a very fact-specific uh, decision 
and it would also be motivated by the respective personal law and how it approaches the concept of marriage um extraterritorial orders so this is a slightly more elaborate question uh, the short point is yes it would be possible for an indian court to uh, to pass an order that applies to foreign assets mm. but it would depend on a number of things so for example under our uh, conflict of laws principles we have the concepts of effectiveness and submission mm. and what these mean is that the effectiveness means that a court can only pronounce a judgment in a case where it can execute the decree within its own territory right uh, whereas submission means an acceptance of the authority of a court to pass judgment so before an indian court uh, you know passes judgment in relation to foreign assets it would undertake this analysis right but in most situations what would happen is that uh, the domicile related the nexus principles that we discussed in the context of when a court would take up a divorce case yes. that nexus would automatically give them the ability to pass this judgment right. so what they would then do is as long as the party is domiciled in india they would pass the judgment in relation to foreign assets but then that judgment would need to be enforced in the relevant foreign country uh based on whether it recognizes india's ability to grant that divorce or not right um and the supreme court has also provided some guidelines in respect of uh, of how this could possibly be done so for example if there's a divorce proceeding that's filed in india then the parties need to make a disclosure of foreign assets in that proceeding okay very good very good so i think from just following on from that here we look at how this can be uh, how this will affect in the case of akash's assets overseas um so would a uae court recognize and enforce an order issued by an indian divorce court and can a difc trust be varied or terminated by an order issued by an indian divorce court so diana from this instance we're looking at obviously the marriage breakdown between satna and akash and we have an order emanating from an, an indian court which is effectively um, proposing to split possibly the shares of the company and potentially um bringing the trust to an end is, is this is this likely to be enforceable or recognized in the UAE and particularly in well, the DIFC well um let me start by saying that if i was instructed to enforce a foreign judgment whatever it may be including a, a divorce judgment from india uh, i would say the uae civil procedures law has quite strict provisions that may be difficult to meet by many of those divorce court orders um unless and save for if there was a treaty between the UAE courts and another court for the um enforcement of judgments now we have very little treaties right. so most of these court judgments that are for divorce are hardly enforced despite the fact that we had a, a great amendment to the civil procedures law 2 years ago but it did not really break the public order uh, you know um, challenge that we would always have to wait in a way start on that nexus in order to enforce a, a judgment now if we're talking about the dfc trust yes particularly now let me say that the dfc if it's not a trust like let's say the business is part of a difc 
and the foreign court judgment is coming from um, a court that has had some agreement with the DIFC. The DIFC courts are much more lenient on enforcing judgments than the onshore courts, that's for sure. However, for the specific issue of a trust, um, it is quite, um, as I explained to you earlier, um, Zach, that although there are the firewalls in the trust law of DIFC that would not enable much of a foreign court judgment to, 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 to come through and change um, the, the rights of the beneficiaries. And yes. However, it, it seems that it's very clear that there is uh, some kind of, um, let, let's, let's call it, um, like, you know, the, the trust law would allow what is a community mm. um, um, property uh, that would come into the courts of DIFC challenging a trust to be accepted. Right, right. right. On the basis that originally the ownership of this trust was not mainly for the settler in this right. case. So but the DIFC law, trust law would allow it. Right, but in the case of a court order that wasn't uh, community linked, it was just a sort of discretionary order to, um, to uh, vary the terms of the trust under an Indian proceeding, that the firewall protections under the DIFC um, would, trust station, they exactly. would prevail, wouldn't they? Right, okay. Exactly, exactly. All right, okay, thanks very much, Diana. Turning now to the U.S. side, will the U.S. court recognize and enforce a similar order emanating from the from an Indian um, divorce court? Um, and I'll yeah. the same today. So, from your side, uh, John and Ivan, what, what say you? That, that, thanks, Zach. So the, the short answer is yes. Um, it's going to vary, though, on a state-by-state -state basis, because yeah. unlike taxation, we're not looking at a federal tier from an enforcement perspective. So divorce is regulated on a state-by-state -state basis. It'll depend on the state law, their definition of residency, and their approach to certain community property rules. Um, as we'll see in later slides, and we'll save the, the more full discussion of this for the, the U.S. source or the U.S. Uh, resident discussion we'll have in the second example, but you'll see that California that Ivan is admitted in and, and will speak about is a little more aggressive in this regard than other states like my home state of Kansas in the, in the center of the U.S. Uh, but in general, the answer here is yes, the, the court's going to recognize it. And in a situation like this with little to no connection, assuming that one of the owners is not living in that property, they're using it as investment purposes, um, probably very little connection from a U.S. law perspective. They would just uh, enforce the order and deal with it the way that the other country had said. Right, right. Okay, so a similar one for me to the U.K. I think the U.K. is a bit different. So the U.K. will generally, even that common law, there's a few statutes that deal with sort of the enforcement recognition. They would tend to only look at a... a um, an order that has a, a sort of monetary side to it. So they would only look at liquidated damages uh, as a way of enforcing where the Indian court order was effectively trying to sever property or transfer property. I think they would find it quite difficult to enforce that in a UK, um, UK court on a reciprocal basis. Okay, so looking at domestic succession, which is the last part of the, uh, the domestic slides. So here we have a situation where Akash actually passes away survived by Satna and Anika, the, the, the daughter. And the question that we'll ask is, the basis in which Indian succession law would apply, was it nationality, residency, domicile, situs, how does Indian succession law apply? 
And does Indian succession law contain forced heirship rights? So this is quite a critical question. Uh, does it permit full testamentary freedom, which is the reverse of full or forced heirship? And then uh, would a, does an Indian succession law permit what we call financial dependent claims? So uh, people that were dependent on the deceased, are they able to challenge what was in the will or are they able to make claims for financial maintenance um, post-death? So um, Shriya, if you can take us through uh, from the Indian succession aspect. Sure. So the general principle on Indian succession is that movables are bequeathed as per the domicile of the individual, whereas immovables bequeathed based on the situs. So what that means is if it's a non-domiciled, non-Indian domiciled person who owns real estate in India, or if it's an Indian domiciled person who owns uh, assets, wherever that person may own these assets, in both those situations, Indian personal laws would apply. Um, Indian succession law may contain forced heirship rights. It would depend on the religion of the person. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if the person is a Muslim, then forced heirship rights would apply under Sharia law applicable to Muslims. But for most other religions, we don't have a concept of forced heirship. Um, I should caveat that for Hindus, there is a concept called the Hindu undivided family, which mm -hmm. is uh, it's a form of collective ownership of property which could impose restrictions on free bequeathal of property uh, similar to what you may find in the context of forced airship. But right. it's, it's not an apple to apple concept, but it would need to be evaluated. Right. Um, so aside from these situations, Indians would generally have full testamentary freedom uh, and there wouldn't be restrictions in terms of having to leave the property to relatives, for instance. Uh, and there would also be restrictions on financial dependence uh, from being able to make claims, assuming that the will has been made validly if there is a will, uh, or assuming that there's an interstate succession, in which case we have uh, legislated rules which apply. Right, right, okay. Okay, so from the UAE perspective, um, the question here is obviously Akash has passed away, and he, he held prior to death a uh, shares in a UAE company, and he'd also um, settled a, a trust. So the question is, uh, would an Indian will be recognized and enforced in the UAE? So this is a will that was executed in, in, in India, so it's not a, a UAE will as such. Uh, which succession law will apply to the company shares if Akash dies without a valid will? So he didn't have a will at all. And then can the validity of the DIFC trust be challenged on the basis of foreign succession law rights? Well, before last Saturday, my, my answer to this question would have been an Indian will would never have been valid in the UAE regarding um, an onshore or an offshore asset in succession. Wow. So, but since Saturday and the new laws that have been introduced in the UAE regarding many issues, and one of them is succession planning, a will that is um, valid, it entered, executed, and valid in uh, the country or whatever country um, the deceased has had before death would be valid in the UAE and would be executed in the UAE upon the law of the country where the will was issued. Right. So this is a new thing for us. And now I can say easily a will will save the day for every expat that is living in the UAE with assets in the UAE. Um, now, there is a bit in, in the same media uh, released on, this, uh, on these laws that said 
save for the UAE assets. That leaves us also in a, in a shaky situation. But I would say probably that the better way would have been to have a, UA, a, a DIFC will mm. to cover the assets, including whatever would have been in India. So it would have to, to be a unified will in a way of two jurisdictions. Yeah. However, now the will is not there and uh, Akash has passed, out without, passed away without a will. Yes. What would happen as far as the DIFC trust and would it be challenged on a foreign succession law? Again, the, the, um, the default situation would be not because of the firewalls that are already in the trust, trust law. However, and again, uh, bearing in mind that the Indian laws, uh, as far as divorce are concerned, um, not, not necessarily divorce here, sorry, um, um, Shreya, the succession planning, I'm not really sure how, how would they have been as far as religious um, issues of also in India. So the idea is that foreign judgment in India, if in any way is for a Muslim, uh, that would actually be implemented immediately in the UAE onshore, that would have made it much easier. And if it's not uh, a Muslim, that we would have again to go with the Sharia route. So uh, we're not really sure how would it be after Saturday, except for the DIFC trust, I would say that we would still go with, if there is a community property with the wife, that would prevail here. Right. So if I understand you, um, when we look at Akash's shares of the company, he died without a will. Uh, and so there's nothing in the UAE under the new law to attach to. Um, are we saying at the moment that it's uncertain how that situation will be played out? Or would it be you apply the, the old rules of just, well, you apply Sharia law to it, regardless um, of his religion? Or how does that work? We don't really know, but they say the law of the deceased. So it may be the, the Indian laws, right, but we don't really know how it's going to be as far as the Sharia, which is, again, a public policy, would be the stand then. Right, right. Okay, okay. All right, so just moving on, um, there's no tax implications, so we don't need to worry. In terms of the U.S. side, so would an Indian will be recognized in the U.S.? Uh, which succession law would apply in the U.S. if Akash dies without a valid will? And which succession law will apply to U.S. land if Akash dies without a valid will, India or U.S., and then the local tax implications? So, um, John, if you can run us that quickly. Yeah, just it, it, as we touched on with the divorce concept, remembering on succession, the important point is that there is no federal element of that. That's going to be regulated on a state-by-state -state basis. The first analysis is exactly what your questions map to. Is this intestate or testate succession? Um, it's why we always say if you're going to hold U.S. assets, at a minimum, you want to have one will for common law jurisdictions and one will for civil law jurisdictions. Um, maybe you go with one will for the particular property in the U.S., uh, depending upon the other common law uh, jurisdictions that are involved. So would a will be recognized in the U.S.? But potentially, you want to be careful about some of the little nuances of how things are taxed versus um, wrapped. So we can use um, uh, testamentary trusts and, and some other um, shielding actions before time in a planning effort to shield against U.S. estate tax exposure, local transfer tax exposures when it is the offshore company shares that are being uh, exchanged when the person dies rather than the, the property in the U.S. Uh, movable or immovable 
um, property. So yeah, keep in mind local tax uh, complications, state by state. The most onerous is California. Um, and we'll touch on some of those particular details in the next section about US specific planning. Okay, okay. And then looking for the UK, I'll just, I'll kind of do this fairly quickly. Um, with Indian will be recognized if it's properly executed uh, under Indian law, uh, domicile of the individual, then that will be fine. So if it's valid in India, then the UK will recognize that. Uh, will succession law apply to Akash's, uh, uh, which succession law will apply to UK investments if Akash dies without a valid will? Well, in the, in the UK, what will happen is it will default to the domicile. So it will be Indian law that will cover the succession to his movable assets in the UK. And then on the land, it will be UK law that covers that. So UK intestacy rules, and then the uh, Indian uh, intestacy rules will apply to the movables. And then the tax implications, this is going to be an inheritance tax issue, uh, potentially, depending on the values of the assets and where they go. Uh, there's no double tax treaty on the inheritance tax side uh, between the UK and India. India doesn't have an inheritance tax law yet. So there's, there's no issue there. In terms of um, the exposure, though, it will, as I say, all be down to where the assets go. Does it go to Sapna? Um, uh, or alternatively, does the, is the assets going to go elsewhere under the intestacy rules, uh, particularly? So that will drive the inheritance tax treatment. But there would be, uh, depending on the values, an exposure to UK inheritance tax in this instance. OK, so sorry, case number two. So looking from the foreign perspective, and I'll just canter through this quickly. So here, we're looking at Vishal, uh, married to Jenny, and has a, a son, Aaron, in the US. Now, key thing to understand about Vishal and the family is that they're US residents, but they're, uh, in the case of Vishal, he's an Indian citizen, so it's an NRI. So resident in the US, uh, in California, holding the array of assets that we see there, land as well as accounts. Now, in this case, um, Vishal had previously set up a UAE will, and also has um, a UAE trust rather, as well as has an interest in the Indian trust, has accounts and land in India, and then the usual accounts in the UK with UK land. Key point to note here is Vishal is a non-resident Indian, um, and is resident in California, the US, but retains his Indian citizenship. We, we don't know the domicile of Vishal, so that's, a, that's left hanging as, a, as, an, as an item. So foreign community property, and this is looking at it from a Californian perspective. So whether community property rights apply in California, whether community property rights includes pre-acquired and inherited property, and the, the position of pre and post-nuptial arrangements. So I think I'd invite Ivan to, to run us through this from the California perspective. Sure. So California is one of eight states in the US that recognizes community property. In California, community property is broadly defined as any property acquired during marriage by either party's labor. I'll say that again because the definition is important. Any property acquired during marriage by either party's labor. So which the definition itself should answer the second question, whether community property includes pre-acquired inherited property. The answer is no, because uh, property acquired by gift, property acquired by inheritance is not acquired by labor. So will not, therefore, not form part of the communal estate. Whether a prenup or a postnup is a agreement is valid in California. Is particular particular of these are foreign law prenups and postnups. California, like a typical lawyerly answer, maybe. Uh, California might recognize the validity the validity of pre and postnups of other jurisdictions. The the 
the issue would be California would apply its own standard of validity on the pre and post note. To summarize things, really California looks at whether or not the disadvantaged spouse had counsel when he or she signed the pre or post nup. If the spouse had counsel when he or she signed the post pre or post nup, then chances are California will recognize the pre or post nup. I'll just add real briefly there, Zach, sorry, just to, to close it off though. The US has an emphasis on avoiding custody or duty elements. So don't try to divvy up the kids or it's my responsibility to do this task or that task. That's typically a no-go in general in the US, even beyond California. And then from a timing perspective, and this connects to having adequate representation that mm -hmm. Ivan mentioned, um, at least, at least six weeks out of the marriage. Do not try to rush the person the week before the marriage, hey, sign these documents. That's got very little chance of being uh, upheld in the US right. from a US perspective. Thanks. All right, thanks very much. Okay, thanks, Ivan. Okay, so from a divorce perspective, here we have the couple, Michelle and Jenny, divorcing in California, and basis on which California court would exercise divorce jurisdiction, and would a California court seek to redistribute property, including community property, and how would they enforce a pre and post nuptial agreement if that was actually agreed in California? So again, Ivan, I'd invite you just to, to run us through briefly these factors. Sure. So California's basis on which to exercise divorce jurisdiction is more so of a factor test. There's a, there's a few factors. Uh, number one is first in time, you know, whether or not this is the first court in which the couple tries to proceed with a divorce. Uh, the second one is primary residence whether or not the couple's primary residence is based in California or another state. And the third one is location of assets. So uh, suppose one spouse tries to get divorced in California. The other party could argue California courts to that the California court is an improper venue and thereby try to change the venue. And the California court would then look at what, all right, are we the first in time? Is this the primary residence in California? And are the assets in California? And Whether then, or not, sorry. Just on the community point, were they, were they actually, when exercising the divorce court powers, could they try and um, redistribute even community property? They would, they, they definitely would. The, so I think that the tricky thing is community property is already owned 50-50. So any, you know, if uh, any property that you obtain that's community property, even if it's titled to one person, for example, with the prime, let's say a primary residence in California, let's say it's titled to the wife's name, but because it's community property, upon a divorce proceeding, the court would say, look, that's 50, 50, 50%, the husband's, 50% the spouse, uh, the, the wife's, in which case, California court a lot of times will uh, either force one party to buy the other, uh, other 50% or force the sale of the property and then split the proceeds 50-50. Okay, okay. And then the nuptial arrangements, I guess it's it's all down to what you said before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, validity. But if they are valid, then then they sh the court should follow what the nuptial agreement said. Is that right? Absolutely, right. that's right. Okay. Okay, I think it's a fairly simple question from Diana. This is the whole thing around the, the DIFC trust. Um, so uh, from Ivan, from your perspective, California can do extraterritorial um, uh, orders under a divorce proceeding, they, they, they're capable of doing that? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So we could have a situation where a DIFC trust is being challenged by a court order from 
the US. And I think Diana, it's pretty much as we mentioned before. They exactly. Get it is the community thing. property that would prevail here. And right, but yes. the order that wouldn't, yeah, because the, the, the trust protections are so strong on DIFC trusts that they wouldn't recognize a foreign court order mm. um, to exercise a discretion here. Unless, yes, unless that is the situation. Now, I have to say that onshore, now, yeah. I think prenups will be um, the happening thing because right. of the fact that we are going to eventually go with the law of the marriage. We will have the prenups being, um, you know, the norm, which has never been before. Right, um, so we're, we're just waiting for the new thing of having prenups uh, right. done yes, extensively. I think you're going to be very busy, Diana. <laughs> <laughs> it seems so. Okay, so Shira, from your perspective, um, here we have a, a court order emanating from the US for the Californian court. And the question that we're going to ask is, would an Indian court recognize and enforce the terms of that, given the, the array of assets that are held, an interest in a trust, an account in India, land in India? If a, a Californian court tried to, to uh, sort of change the legal ownership of any of this, how would it be received by an Indian court? So it could be considered conclusive, Zach, uh, although there are some exceptions where this may not be the case. Uh, one is where the jurisdiction of the foreign court is challenged um, or where the divorce decree is considered to have been given um, in a manner that's opposed to natural justice or in a manner that's fraudulent, for instance, uh, or if it results in a breach of any law that the Indian court thinks should be applicable in India. So one common situation that uh, that you may want to keep in mind is that a lot of non-resident Indians, even when they are permanently resident outside India, they frequently come back to India to get married. Uh, and so they may actually be registered uh, under an Indian legislation, like the Hindu Marriage Act or Foreign Marriage Act, for instance. Uh, and in that case, you need to evaluate whether the condition for divorce under Indian law is different from the condition applicable under the relevant foreign law. So, for example, um, bigamous marriages under Hindu law uh, are voidable at the option of the wife in India. They're not considered to be void immediately. Uh, so if there's a conflict in the foreign jurisdiction with a concept like that, for instance, then there could be a situation where the court would say that the, the two laws applicable are essentially in conflict and therefore we will not enforce this uh, foreign judgment. But barring situations like that, it should generally uh, be possible for foreign divorce decrees to be enforced in India. Right, okay. So far as the UK side, it comes back to what I said earlier, you know, where we have an order trying to sever property that generally won't be recognized. But if it's liquidated damages or a money amount, then, then the, the reciprocal should kick in. But uh, in this instance, if they're trying to split UK property, then this, this won't be uh, something that the UK courts would generally entertain. The final section on this. So succession. So here we have Vishal passing away whilst resident in California. And, and retaining his Indian citizenship. Um, basis of application of California succession law, how does it, how does it actually kick in? Is it citizenship, residence, domicile, situs? How does it work? Is there forced air rights under California law? Uh, which succession law will apply to land located in California if Vishal dies without a valid will? So without uh, any valid will, how will it apply to the land in, the, in, the, uh, in California? 
And then likewise, when it comes to which of the succession law will apply where it shares and investments located in California, but which will dies uh, without a valid will, and then the tax implications. So I'd probably invite Ivan to, uh, to run us through briefly um, how this will play out. Sure. So if you pass away in, if you pass away domicile in California without a will, then California's intestacy statute will apply. Right. Uh, typically, that just means if your community property goes to your spouse, and your separate property, property may go to your spouse and your children. If you don't have any spouse and children, it goes to your parents. If you don't have any parents, it goes to your siblings. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. mm -hmm. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. And if you're not otherwise domiciled in California and you die without a will, then California's intestacy statutes will only apply to California situated assets, so meaning uh, California real estate. Um, California does not have forced air rights. Uh, California respects the free disposition of assets. Having said that, because there's community property, you have to be mindful that not all assets under your name that's titled to you is for you to dispose. So for example, if you, if the house that's titled under one spouse's name is in fact community property, uh, that spouse can't actually dispose of the entirety of the house on his or her will. You can only do half of the house. And then the tax implications, as, as we mentioned before. Sure. So what's important to keep in mind is, so California does not does not have an inheritance tax or estate tax. It used to have an inheritance tax, no longer. So if you pass away in California, there's no state estate tax. Having said that, if you pass away in other states, for example, New York, you will be uh, hit with a state tax. Uh, another tax application will be property tax, but just in particular with the California real estate. Uh, California state counties impose a generally about 1% property tax annually on the, on the purchase price of the property. In California, receiving a property by bequest, by inheritance, does not sort of re-trigger the property tax assessment. Um, so the property tax is going to be based on the purchase price rather than you know, the fair market value upon receipt. But that's just California. And what's it's absolutely important to keep in mind that in other states, it will vary you know, the, the basis of property tax and the base of the state tax. And in most states, you can avoid both of these problems by owning it through a structure, by owning real estate through a non-US company. Okay, and just to think very quickly on the DIC, although this is this is an interesting one, Diana, because here we're, we're saying, will the DIC trust law provide protection against a California community property claim? So this is not divorce or anything like that. This is looking at, um, obviously, California confers community property within the relationship between uh, what was Jenny and Vishal. In this case, we're looking at Jenny effectively making a claim against the trust for community property. How will that work if it's a DIFC trust? Will that be an acceptable claim? Sorry, Diana, you've got mute on still. Diana, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is the, this is the, <laughs> the confusing thing about speaking when you are on mute. Yeah. Um, well, with, with the DIFC trust law, we'll have to look at Article 14, which is titled Limitations in Foreign Law. And if we look at Article 14, it actually has all the non-voidables of a trust in GIFC, keeping it um, protected. However, when we look at um, uh, sub-Article 3, that, that would say, notwithstanding this article, 
this is when the court determined that at the time when the property was transferred to a trust, a settler was insolvent or intended to defraud any creditor. And this is where the creditor here in this instance is the wife, according to the order that she would get from California, she would become, according to her claim, um, part of this trust. Right, right, okay, okay. And then I guess briefly, just from the India perspective, um, uh, which succession law would apply to land located in the official dies with a valid will? Um, is that gonna be India or US? Um, and then which succession law would apply to shares and investments located in the official guys without a will. So this is, um, so, so Shreya, we're, we're looking at the, the usual scenario here where we have a will that's been executed in, um, in let's say the US and then one where official passes away without having any wills at all. How will the, uh, the, the estate in India pass? So uh, thanks, Zach. So the assumption here is that Vishal is uh, domiciled in the US. Uh, so starting with that, immovable property would be governed by the law applicable to the CITES. So if immovable property is in India, then Indian succession law would apply. Uh, and this would apply irrespective of whether there's a will or whether there's interstate succession. So for example, if there's forced airship applicable uh, under the relevant personal law, then uh, the immovable property would be subject to that. Um, but shares and investments... Uh, since Vishal is a non-domiciled individual under the current example, should not be covered by Indian law uh, because India would follow the approach that the law of domicile should govern it. Right, right. And then the tax implications, there's, there's not going to be anything at the moment because we, we don't have Right, Correct. okay. All right, so finally, I think on the UK side of this, um, which succession will apply to land located in the UK official dies without a valid will? Well, in this case, if we're looking from a California perspective, it's going to be um, land located in the UK. From a US perspective, it will be UK law um, that will cover that if there's no valid will, because it's, a, it's going to be a CITES-driven aspect with succession law. It will apply to shares and investment located in the UK, which all dies without a valid will. That will be US. So it will be US um, intestacy laws that will apply. Uh, and would Jenny's California community property rights be recognized in the UK? Yes, the UK would take cognizance of the uh, matrimonial domicile, and if that provides for community property, then the UK would likewise take that into consideration. From a tax perspective, Vishal would have made a transfer. Uh, the UK and the US do have a double tax treaty on IHT, but it wouldn't be applicable here because California doesn't have that concept at the moment. And so it would be down to the whole issue of the values and where the property is going to determine whether or not there's an inheritance tax exposure from the UK perspective. Okay, I think that's pretty much it from us on terms of the, uh, the, the main sort of run through. We've got a number of um, sort of questions that have come up in the, in the chat. And if we're, we're happy to run through, I'd invite us to, to look at this. Some of them have obviously been answered already. Um, but uh, I think, sorry, go ahead, John. Yeah, Zach, I'll put my hand up first. I answered one of the questions in the chat, but I think it is very important for everyone to grasp this concept um, that was asked because it wasn't addressed in the examples. In our examples, we talked about somebody who is India resident, a tax resident and living in India, holding US property. And we talked about somebody who is resident in the US, living in the US, holding US property and outside property. The question came up though, what about a US person who is registered and res resident in India, 
with their offshore holdings. And, and I just want to reiterate to everybody, the worldwide tax system is for the all three types of U.S. persons. That is a citizen like myself, a green card holder, because a green card, the technical name for that is lawful permanent resident. So worldwide taxation for them. And then also for anyone who meets the substantial presence test, which for a given year can be as little as 31 days. It's a three-year rolling average. So don't get um, stuck on you have to physically be in the U.S. for half the year. If you spend two years in the U.S., and then stay for the first month or so and then go back, you might still be U.S. tax resident for the entirety of that year that you went somewhere else. Um, and that's worldwide taxation. So not limited to what you're holding within the country you're living in or what you have in the U.S. It's anything you have anywhere in the world. So that's a very important concept. If you have clients or friends or colleagues who are any of those three, citizen, Greek card holder, or spend a substantial time in the U.S., they need to, to talk to a professional and get good advice about what their exposure is. And there are programs to get those cleaned up if they've overlooked something. Right. We have one which may be relevant, which is the uh, NRI living in Dubai has New York properties, uh, what happens when they pass on? Will it, need, uh, will it need a US will or an India will? So a New York, so UK, US CITES uh, property, uh, New York, um, what should, what's the best advice for this um, non-resident Indian? Well, I believe, um, sorry, am I on? Yes, a Dubai will will do here. A Dubai will will cover properties in Dubai, and it can cover properties, in, which is a DIFC will mainly, because the DIFC is um, a common law jurisdiction. So the the actual will would be able to cover and uh, be able to be used by probate courts in um, in New York and in India. I think we have just one broad one, which is effectively, I think, looking at the. The difference between a California and a UK court for divorce purposes to see which one, if you were gaming the system, which would be the best one to get divorced in. So uh, the answer is the answer is Florida. <laughs> Florida. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So there we go. Question. They're, bo they're both bad. The New York and California are among amongst the most onerous from a divorce uh, uh, perspective. So neither one of those, I would say, are jurisdictions that people seek out if they are wanting a pre-agreed arrangement to be respected or an orderly, timely transition. Now, if you're somebody wanting to challenge, that's exactly where you want to run to. Right, okay. Okay, all right. I think the, all the other questions have been already answered um, during, the, during the rather lengthy webinar. Um, but uh, I think that's pretty much it. Okay, so it just leads me to thank everybody that helped and participate with this. So thank you very much, Shira, for coming on and helping. And thank you, Diana. Um, thank you, Matt. Thank you, thank you for John and Ivan. Thanks very much. And for everybody that viewed it, um, a little bit longer than usual. So thanks for your patience. But uh, thanks very much. And I think that will close it for today. Thank you. Thank you.